You know, it sure can be a challenge to pass your faith on to your kids. In fact, oftentimes when you try to do it, your attempts can sometimes uh, backfire on you. I knew of this uh, pastor and his wife, not our home, by the way, but uh, they were having a large group over for dinner one night at the house, and uh, they uh, sat down for the meal, and the uh, mother of the house asked the daughter to pray the blessing over the meal before they ate. Well, the little girl was somewhat shy about doing so, and uh, the mother encouraged her. She said, well, just pray what you think mommy would pray. And she said, okay. And so she bowed her head and she said, Dear Lord, what on earth was I thinking when I invited all these people to my house? <laughs> well, if that's ever been you, you're going to find some help in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14 in verse number 11. We're profoundly concerned about where kids are today with the faith, even church kids. We have found that somewhere near around 85% of church kids across the United States drop out of church upon high school graduation. Only about 15% are faithful as young adults. And it used to be they would drop out and then they would get married, have children in return. But that's no longer happening. Uh, One author says they are discontinuously different than previous generations. And I don't mean to intimate that the 20-year-olds today are a lost cause. That's not the case. But I'm thinking about kids that are still in our home under our influence and parental authority and with whom we have daily contact. How in the world can we raise kids so they'll be faithful young adults and follow Jesus Christ as Savior? Of course, you know the difficulty and the danger of being a 20-something and not being faithful to God. You start making the most important decisions in life somewhere between the age of 18 and 29. Everything about your vocation, where to go to school, what to major in, and who to marry. And in a backslidden state, you don't have the direction or the hand of God upon your life, and most are making very poor choices that they end up regretting. Well, we want to avoid all that. Instead, we want to build kids to where they can be faithful and walk with God. An important thing, though, is to make sure you don't build barriers between you and your kids, especially when it comes to matters of the faith. Now, back in the 70s, Pink Floyd sang a song about this that you're probably familiar with, and he called parents and other adult authorities just another brick in the wall. And what Pink Floyd meant was is that he was building a wall between him and adult authority. And every time a parent would say something, that was just another brick in the wall. Every time an an adult authority would say something, just another brick in the wall. And he erected this wall, this brick wall between him and others. And frankly, there are some kids in the process now of doing that with even Christian parents and church parents. How in the world then can I avoid becoming just another brick in the wall between kids and God's authority? Proverbs 14 is going to help us. Now, The knee-jerk reaction at this point is to start blaming churches and pastors and staff. The research does something entirely different. It says that parents are the most influential factor when it comes to a kid's faithfulness. Not the church, not the student minister, not the pastor, not even the church's ministry, but the parent himself or herself. The most influential thing, another term they use, they are of the greatest importance and they far outweigh any other influence. Listen, Jesus went to a corrupt synagogue and he turned out pretty good. 
And so the truth is, is that parents can and sometimes must overcome the difficult and unfortunate influence of some churches and some staff. Let's just admit it. That's the case. But parents can and parents must and God's Word will tell them how. Here in Proverbs 14, Solomon, who did backslide when he was a young man, had something to say about this. Let's just look at verse number 11, and we will dissect the rest of the chapter, or much of it later. Verse 11, The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish is the promise of the Word of God. You can be more than just a brick in the wall. You can get through to kids with a vital, robust, living, attractive faith in Jesus Christ. So what can I do to build my children who will be, uh, into Christian uh, followers of Christ who will follow Christ even as young adults? Well, there are several things that you need, and the first is this, and that is a genuine salvation. You cannot pass along what you do not have. Now, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 11, and verse 26 will direct us in that place. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. So God makes a promise to those to whom he's given the gift of righteousness, the gift of being upright before him, that he will bless their home to the extent that it will flourish. And by the way, when you come to Jesus Christ, it's not just that you have to try to act upright. It's that God gives you the gift of being upright before Him. And with that comes all the gifts of perfection. Now, you and I are not perfect, but He transfers all the virtues and the merits of Jesus Christ to His people so they become upright before Him. And God begins to treat His children as if they've never sinned. They have, but His grace is so large and burgeoning and, and magnanimous that He treats His children who repent and place faith in Jesus Christ as if they'd never sinned before, in fact, as if they had only done righteousness that is transferred to them. And so we trust God and He gives us all the power of heaven so that we might flourish. But then look at verse 26, another promise. It says here, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and His children will have a place of refuge. And so God promises flourishing and refuge to those who have been saved and have come to know Him. Now look at verse number 11. It says at the end, the second part, the tent of the upright will flourish. That word is often translated tabernacle, the place where God dwelt when he walked with Israel. It was the place of God's residence, where God felt at home, where he was made welcome. If you've got that kind of home, it's because you've embraced Jesus Christ as Master and Lord and as Savior. And you love Him. Your heart is set aflame for Him. You're ablaze for Him. You're not just doing just the Sunday thing and living like you want to Monday through Saturday. Instead, Jesus Christ is Master and Lord, not merely because you have to, but because you love Him and you want to follow Him. And when that happens, your home becomes a tabernacle for God. He is in residence there. He is welcome there. He fills at home. And in response to that, he protects. And in response to that, he causes that family to flourish. So how in the world can I know then that I have genuine salvation? Well, write this down. 1 John chapters 1 through 5, the totality of 1 John, is a book you need to confront yourself with. You need to read that carefully. In fact, when people wonder if they're really saved, 
I encourage him to read it through once a day for seven days, then come back and talk with me. Because there, John describes the power of the conversion experience. When you really have Jesus Christ in your life and heart, he makes changes. And they're described in 1 John chapters 1 through 5. And when that happens, you begin to grow in humility. You begin to grow in obedience. You begin to grow in love. You begin to grow in your biblical knowledge. You begin to grow in victory and resisting temptation of the world. And so what you do is that you open up to 1 John, and you look through 1 John, and you ask yourself, has that ever happened to me? If it has, the Scripture assures you you've been saved. If it hasn't, you need to be born again. You need to come to Christ. You, you may be a church member. You may be religious. That's not enough. In order to build kids that are going to be faithful to God all the way through, you've got to make absolutely certain that you know, that you know, that you know that you've been born again. It makes all the difference in the world. And look, we're talking more than just about that. We're talking about eternity. You know, the research has come in, and I like to read research, and I found recently the statistics are in. One out of every one person dies and goes into eternity. And you and your kids have got to live somewhere. And if you are not certain and fully given to Jesus Christ, you're not only putting your eternity at risk, you're putting the eternity of your children at risk. And I can't imagine someone being such a monster as to do that. If you are not certain, read through 1 John 1-5 through 5, once a day for seven days and ask, has this ever happened to me? Now this is important in this life for several reasons and it's best illustrated by John Phillips, a great British commentator. He said that when he was a boy, his uh, aunt and uncle took him to the Hampton Gardens in London. Uh, they were built by a cardinal there, and Henry VIII was so impressed with them that he took them over. And uh, he demanded the um, deed to the property where they were, and he received them. Well, John Phillips and his uh, aunt and uncle went to look through these gardens, and what they were is that they were a series of hedges that were formed and shaped into a maze. His aunt and uncle had been there before, but they got in, and after a few turns, they were lost. Well, his uncle knew enough to go back to the middle of the garden and sit there on a bench where people who got lost would sit. That's why the bench was there. And he said to John, he said, press that button over there. And there was a bell button there. He pressed a button, and in a few moments, a servant there at the gardens came and said, are you lost? And he said, that was the understatement of the century. And so he showed them out. He took a right, he took a left, he took some other turns, and they... We're out of the gardens. When you come to Jesus Christ, you come to someone who knows the way. And there will be times when you will have experiences and challenges with your children where you do not know which way to turn, but God always does. And without, listen, without a vital living walk with Jesus Christ, there is no guidance. You're on your own. But you, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you get Him as leader of your life, and He makes all the difference, and He gives you good guidance. I could go on and on about that, how great God has been to us, as weak as we are, to give us the guidance that we need. But the first thing you need is a genuine salvation. But there's a second thing. Gracious sentiments. That is, you need to have a gracious spirit. You need to be known more for being gracious and kind and gentle and soft than grumpy, cranky, cantankerous, and grouchy. No grouches at all. Now, there's a verbal graciousness in verse number 5. 
A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. You don't lie to your kids. That doesn't always mean you have to tell them everything, but you don't lie to your children. Then there's emotional graciousness in verse number 17 and verse number 29. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. In verse 29, more about emotional graciousness. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Well, there's also social graciousness. Verse 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor happy is he. And then there's vocational graciousness. In your work, the king's favor is towards the wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Graciousness, kindness, tenderness, gentleness, having a soft spirit as your default setting and how you communicate with others, that graciousness makes us believable. Grouchiness, grouchiness instead causes us to be people who have our integrity questioned. Graciousness makes us believable. Grouchiness does the exact opposite. Gracious makes parents believable. Grouchy people make ineffective parents. Now listen, I need to touch on something sensitive here. I know that surprises you about me, but this is why back when President Obama was president of the United States, we were very, very careful what we said about the president in our home in the presence of our children. They would pick up someplace or another some criticism of the president, and oftentimes it was very harsh, and they would come home and tell us about it. And we would begin to talk with them through that, and if it was something that judged his motives or his character or something like that, we would say, listen, we really don't know those kinds of things. Quite frankly, I thought his policies and positions were bad enough to where that was enough. We didn't have to speculate. Oh my goodness, and the horrible awful speculation that was heaped upon the president and the first lady. It was just awful. Uh, And by people who did not know and could not know what was going on in his heart at all. And so what we would do with our kids is that we would talk through the policies and the positions. We would go back to the scripture. We would go back to theology and lead them to what I thought was some legitimate criticism and concern about the president's policies and move away from the president's motives and character and spirit, things that we could not possibly know. In fact, I would usually end up the discussion with the kids, I don't really agree with the president, but I've got to tell you, if he was my neighbor, we would try to be friends because he set a marvelous example with his family. And that's where we would come. And here's why. Number one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Peter said, when Nero was on the throne of Rome, honor the king. That is inflexible. Ladies and gentlemen, the Antichrist is in the process now of preparing the United States for anarchy, and he oftentimes does it through church people. What he wants is complete anarchy to where we don't respect the government, have no trust in the government at all. And when that anarchy overwhelms the nation, that's when he steps in with the promise of peace. And some people, even conservatives and Christians, are playing into it. 1 Peter 2.17 is inflexible. It cannot be changed. It stands forever as the Word of God. Honor the King. That's what it says. And Nero was on the throne. There's a second reason we were real careful to do that. And that is... If I ended up saying something or endorsing a position 
that someone outside of my home could undermine with my kids. It would throw not only my judgment about politics and policy and government into question with my kids, it would also throw into question my children's trust in my spiritual views about Jesus. Let me tell you something. Kids do not categorize credibility from one area to the next all that carefully. They don't. I want them to believe me, not just about my views about public policy and issues. I want them especially to believe me about Jesus Christ. And if I come across to them as a hothead, as an unthinking critic, as someone who's just promoting agenda, who's someone who is angry or upset with the world when the world doesn't agree with me, they will not only question my views of public policy, they will question my views about the Lord Jesus, and I can't have that. So what do you do? Well, you be honest. If the president deserves critique on his policies, critique them and take a stand and teach your children God's word on these issues. Absolutely. That's to be done all the time. I've been doing that since I was in the fifth grade. Now, I was a weird fifth grader, but I've been doing it ever since then. But that's not all. Go ahead and do that, but please, oh please, do not come across as moss-backed, grumpy, carnal, uh, quenching the Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit at all. You need the power of heaven to get through to your kids. And if you undermine your credibility in one area, they'll transfer it to another, and the devil will make sure it happens every time. You need a gracious Spirit. Well, there's a third thing that we need, and that is growing, growing study. Verse number six, a scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. So there's a value of wisdom in seeking and gaining more and more knowledge. Verse number 25 says as well about growing study. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. And so in... Um, Back in verse number 6, you learn in verse number 25, you transfer and speak that to your children. Now, young adults who have strayed following high school graduation were more likely to say the only time we learned about the Bible was when we went to church. If the Bible is not taught faithfully in a home, it is likely that kids will stray from the church following high school graduation. The, the research also shows that parents in Sunday school in the mid, midweek service were much more likely to produce faithful kids who became faithful young adults than those who did not. And that's why it's so very, very important for us to train when it comes to our Sunday school ministry. And so that's why today everyone that is involved in Sunday school as a worker needs to, uh, needs to make reservations to be here May 21st when Alan Taylor will be training us in the Sunday school ministry. By the way, you know we've got Sunday school, right? I'm just checking. You know we meet on Wednesday nights for, I'm just checking. All right, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock. Parents that are involved in these things are far more likely to produce faithful kids. And it's not a sin to come. We don't charge anything. We don't bite people who show up. Come. You're not so perfect that you can stay away. You're not so bad that you can't come. And so parents that do these things are more likely to produce kids who are faithful young adults. Now you may say, wait a minute, I, I wouldn't know what to say to my kids if I was to open the Bible and, and deliver it to them. Well, let me give you three helps. Number one, how about sharing with them what you've already read in the Bible? And of course, that reminds me of the fellow who uh, was talking to another fellow. He said, you know, I've gone back to church. And uh, he says, no way. 
I, you? I can't believe it. He said, I sure have. He said, um, I bet you $10 you can't say the Lord's Prayer. He said, well, I can too. He said, let me see $10. He said, okay. He said, well, all right, now say it. He said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, some of you aren't laughing. That's not the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and the fellow said, well, man, I didn't, know you. I, I didn't know you knew it so well. Here's $10. <laughs> Share what you've already learned from the Scripture, but make sure it's Scripture. Okay? In fact, open up to the book of Hezekiah real quickly. Now, what's the problem with that? Say it with me. There is no book of Hezekiah. All right. Just checking. A lot of deacons were looking for that book. So use your own study. <laughs> Second, use the sermons. Use the sermons. I, I spend 16 to 20 hours a week preparing messages. And... We provide a skeletal outline on the back, a PowerPoint to help uh, with learning. And if you'll take a point, I mean, some of those sermons will last you a whole year, you know, with all the points that are there. So take what you hear on Sunday morning and transfer it to your kids. On, on Monday, cover one point. Tuesday, cover another. Wednesday, cover another. And that can be a great big help to you. Ask your children, what did you think about this text? And so, we're, I mean, listen, it can't get any easier than that. And then third, Use family devotionals. I will tell you, they're a little dated, but if you can find any family devotional written by Josh McDowell, it's tremendous. And we've used those in our family through the years. And so you need growing study. But there's a fourth thing that we need as well, and that is great service. Now, you can learn the Word, but you've got to do it. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, do all that you can to have a one-to-one -one ratio between what you hear and what you do. Now, sometimes what you hear, you're already doing. I'm talking about the areas that you're not doing yet. Have a one-to-one -one ratio where you intentionally implement what you hear from the Word of God that you're not yet doing into your own life. There needs to be great service in life. Now, teenagers, or excuse me, young adults that have strayed complain often. They say, I think the only reason... My parents go to church is to feel better about themselves. Young adults who strayed were 50% more likely to say mom and dad attended but did not serve. They're more likely to stay if mom and dad have a definitive role. Mere church attendance makes little difference. Mere church attendance is a contributing factor now, that's counterintuitive, but mere church attendance is a contributing factor to unfaithfulness following high school graduation. There needs to be growing study that is a result of your own personal walk with God and is the result of your involvement in the church. But there also has got to be service joined to that. Now, there's several approaches to service or several areas of service in Proverbs 14. There's lifestyle service in verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. And verse 34 talks about lifestyle, or excuse me, um, uh, verse number 14 talks about zealous service in Proverbs uh, 14. 
Verse number 14 says, The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Zealous service satisfies the soul and satisfies the family. And then there is active service in verse 23. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. In other words, those that labor at the service of Christ in his church are far better off than those who merely chatter about the faith and merely talk about uh, their faith. Now, we cannot be casual or whimsical when it comes to service for Christ. If you're too busy to seek God, you're too busy to attend, you're too busy to serve, if soccer and Little League are more important than Sunday school, if you cheat on your taxes, if you fail to pay your bills, if you fight endlessly with one another, your children will get the message that mom and dad talk a good game, but they do not practice what they preach. If you serve them this weak soup, they will spew it out of their mouths as soon as they are out from underneath your leadership as a parent. They will note they will note consistent weaknesses, and the next generation will magnify them far beyond what you ever dreamed they would. The next generation always does that. We need great service. Now, one essential ingredient to all of this happens to be time. You can't do everything, and you need to stop trying. You've got to focus on a few things that are important to God and what he says should be important to your family. You say, I, I can't do this. I don't have the time. Then let me assure you, you're doing more than what God wants you to do. You've determined to live your life your own way for whatever reason. And God is saying you need to scale back and be committed to great service, growing study, a gracious sentiment, and genuine salvation. James Dobson has written about this in his book, How to Bring Up Girls. And he could have just as easily said this in different ways about boys and wrote a book on that as well. But here's what he wrote. He um, said this. He said, let me ask a rhetorical question, or several of them. Do you hope your daughters will be sexually promiscuous even from their teen years? Do you prefer that your girls be brash, loud, and aggressive in their relationships with males? Now again, we could ask similar questions about guys. Do you hope that they will be easy marks for boys seeking sexual conquest? Do you want them to be foul-mouthed, crude, rude, profane, and discourteous? Is it your desire that they dress provocatively in order to attract the attention of guys revealing more than they conceal. When they become teenagers, do you want them to look like prostitutes, pumping up their lips with collagen and their breasts with silicone? Do you want them to be so ashamed of their bodies that they feel compelled to diet at nine years of age and are afraid to eat by 13? Medically, sometimes some of these things are necessary, I understand. I'm talking about elective items. Are you comfortable with professors at the university who will encourage your nearly grown daughters to experiment with lesbian relationships and tell them that bisexuality is an even greater trip. Do you know that your girls will learn that marriage is an outdated institution that should be re redefined and discarded? 
Do you want them to disdain the cherished beliefs you've been teaching them since they were babies? If these are your aspirations for your girls, and they probably aren't, then you need to do nothing to achieve them. The culture will do it for you every time. It is designed, the culture that is, to turn this generation of kids into politically correct clones. This is what lies in the path of children whose parents are overworked, distracted, exhausted, and uninvolved. Without their care and concern, the culture will take them to hell. If you want your kids to be rotten, you don't have to do anything. The culture will do it for you. If you want to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you've got to exclude everything outside the will of God and focus like a laser on those things that are important to God when it comes to your family. You still complaining that you're too busy? Listen, Jaswald Sanders said this, The fulfillment of one God-given duty never necessitates the neglect of another God-given duty. In other words, you've got a duty to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord, and God has never added to your life anything that will hinder that. You have. If it's hindered, you've added it. God has not. And so find an axe, find a chainsaw, stick a dynamite, whatever you've got to do, and set it off or crank it up or wield it one way or the other, And come carve out significant time for the sake of kids. That you may be ensured that you've got genuine salvation, growing study, gracious sentiments, and great service on behalf of Him. Now, if you've messed up, let me say, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to parent the way God says, or am I going to parent the way I want to do it? the way my girlfriends and my family does it. What am I going to do? You've got to make a choice and decision. If you haven't decided to parent your children the way God wants you to, there's hope. If you're willing to discard that life outside of Him and reject it and say no, and if you're willing to deliver yourself and your sins and your failures into His care because He died and rose again for you, then friend, you can start over and you can start new. If your children are still at home, you've still got time. If they're not, perhaps they will listen to you. But today is the day to get it right and to get it right with God. One father did. There was a Harlem, New York apartment building that had caught a flame. And a little four-year-old girl was dangling on the uh, ledge of a window on the fourth story. And firemen couldn't get the ladder truck into the alley, and so they pulled out a net to catch her, but they couldn't convince her to jump into it. And so they found her father. He came and with a bullhorn spoke to her and said, trust me. And she did. And she fell so, uh, uh, in such a limp way, she didn't break a single bone when she landed into the net. And he scooped her up and carried her to safety. She knew his voice, she heard his voice, she trusted him. And I want to assure you, of all the mistakes you've made, you haven't made one that the grace of God cannot cover. 
You've not done anything that the blood of Jesus has not atoned for. You've not done anything that the power of the resurrection cannot overcome. And if you will abandon your all to him, do things his way, trust his cross and resurrection, God can cover all that, and he can make you new. It's time to get that done. Now today, some of you need to receive that gift. You're not certain that you know Jesus as Savior and Lord. In fact, you've been doubting, and you've been doubting for some time. When Steve Foster was preaching here, you began to doubt some more. It's time to come. It's time to get that settled. Others of you are too busy. You need to get this right with God. The altar will be open. Others of you need to bring your small children to this altar and dedicate yourself and dedicate your family to following Him and to do things His way. And Dad, you need to lead the way. So let's stand together. Let's pray together. And let's ask God to have a great hour of victory as we extend our invitation. Father, thank you for the matchless name of Jesus. We praise you for that. And we want to ask, O oh God, that you will help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Let us build the homes and let us build the church family that nurtures the next generation, that it may be a blaze and a flame for the Lord Jesus. I pray, O oh God, that every family here would be yielded to you and surrendered to you, and that your will will be cherished, that your son will be magnified, that your power will be known, that your word would be honored, and that these kids may grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Thank you for hearing us. Now, as you keep praying and talking to God, our staff will be here in the front. We're going to sing a song after I finish this prayer, and we want to ask you to come. You come with anything on your heart, and God loves you, and He will hear you. Father, would you please gather for your Son now all that He desires. And I pray that we'd all be surrendered to him when the final amen is said. In Jesus' name.